Join us in Omaha, Nebraska on Saturday, October 8th, 2022, as I'm proud to present Historic Haunted Heartland, a night of incredible true stories of paranormal phenomena, with not one, not two, but three paranormal experts alive on stage at the newly renovated and beautiful Benson Theater in the heart of Omaha. The fun starts with Omaha historian and paranormal investigator Jamie Nestrel as she reveals the true details on the dark history of Omaha. Next, Johnny Hauser, the longtime caretaker and nation's leading expert on the Velisca Axe House. We're going to explore the crimes committed there with him and the history of its haunting. And finally, making his debut in Omaha, John E.L. Tenney will deliver one of his signature weird lectures. Tickets are available this summer, and I invite you to visit Necronomicast.com and follow the show on Facebook for more information. Historic Haunted Heartland, brought to you by Necronomicast, Saturday, October 8th, 2022, a night that could change your life or afterlife. From the historic haunted heartland in Omaha, Nebraska, my name is Brian Corey, and I welcome you all to this episode of the Necronomicast. Joining me tonight for a late night conversation is one of the United Kingdom's leading documentary directors, Mr. John Dower. Now, just looking over his resume, John's been nominated for Emmy Awards, he's won Peabody Awards, numerous awards and accolades, and earlier this year, he delivered the Netflix hit entitled Sophie, A Murder in West Cork. It's an incredible deep dive into one of the most tragic murders in modern Irish history. Then over on HBO Max, you can explore one of the greatest whodunits in history with his with this fascinating documentary, The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. So I'm very excited to have as a guest, for your listening pleasure, John Dower on this episode of Necronomicast. And now calling in on the Necronomicast hotline from South London, I've got filmmaker John Dower joining me. John, welcome. Thanks for having me. Good evening or uh, good afternoon, your time. Yeah, it's good afternoon for me. Your your evening's just starting for you. John, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I really enjoyed your films that I I watched. I watched Sophie, Murder in South Cork. West Cork, yeah. Sophie, a murder in West Cork. West Cork, West Cork, West Cork. You're in South London. Yeah. (laughs) I enjoyed that immensely. And then I was like, I wonder what else this guy's made. And you tackled one of my favorite subjects, D.B. Cooper. So I'm, I'm... I just had to have you on the program. So thank you for your time and for your hospitality and having having this conversation with me. Pleasure. What I liked about your, uh, about your documentary on Sophie, A Murder in West Cork, it relied heavily on, and it gives more heart to the family, to the to the victim. And and I think that's always lost sometimes in true crime specials or documentaries or books, magazines, that people just focus on the crime and focus on a trial or focus on what led the killer to do something like this. But I really appreciated the fact that you dug deep and had really um, just heartfelt interviews with the family of Sophie and the, the key principal people that were involved uh, with that horrible case from 1996. Yeah, that was a very conscious decision. In fact, it was probably the reason for making the series. Uh, and I felt that a lot with, I mean, you know, true crime has become this thing now, hasn't it? I mean, it's always been around, but it feels like it's become 
a thing. In fact, towards the end of making the series, I was getting my phone upgraded um, in a in a local mobile a cell phone shop, and and the lady behind the counter asked me what I did, and I said, well, actually, you know, for filling out the form, I said I'm a documentary filmmaker, and normally you get tumbleweed at that point. And she was like, oh no, I love. I love documentaries. I'm like, oh, wow, this doesn't happen often. So I said, so what, so, so what documentaries, you know, do you like? She said, oh, Netflix, true crime. And I said, any others? And she said, no, 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 just Netflix, true crime. And so I thought, oh, my God, it's actually the Netflix true crime documentary has become a genre in itself. And, and this was sort of my first foray into true crime. And I was very conscious that, like you say, I mean, it's, you know, we have a character in our, film a writer whose husband um knew well they both knew the prime suspect i won't say any more than that but she said you know true crime goes back to those sort of populist you know pulp novels of the 40s and 50s and they always had an attractive blonde woman on the cover and unfortunately a lot of true crime is um is a is conducted against women but they so rarely get a voice. They're just a sort of empty vessel in these in these kind of programs. And and with this story in particular, it's it's not. There was a podcast, a very good podcast, but that podcast, which was called West Court, that podcast really did sort of focus on the prime suspect. Almost, I felt they were seduced by him, and there was very little of Sophie's family, their voice. In the film, so that was something we always wanted to do. Not only because it felt morally the right thing to do, but also what that family has done in the last twenty-five years is pretty extraordinary in itself. You know, they have not let this go, and they've kept going and kept going and kept going. So, yeah, it was always very key for us when we set out to make it. All of us in the production team that they needed to be upfront and central in in, in the series. So when you're going. And you're thinking about making a show and you're thinking about why well, you're researching different things, different topics, different, different crimes or events in history that you want to make a documentary out of what drew you to this one uh, from, from 1996, uh, you know, in, in Ireland, London, Europe, it might be older news. It's pretty new here in America. We didn't, I didn't hear anything at all about it really growing up. Uh, through college or or being a young adult until this this came forward now uh, what what made you what led you to this particular story i mean i can't take credit for for um i, I just became the director on it but it, bizarrely i i mean you know i live a lot closer to ireland than you do only like an hour's flight but i didn't know this story and actually i'd made another film about a very american subject not db cooper i'd made a film about scientology um, called My Scientology Movie. And the, the guy in front of the camera in that is, uh, is a very well-known journalist in our country called Louis Theroux. Um, and he, he, he's, he's sort of known in the States as well. And he, he's very into podcasts. And he said, oh, you've got to listen to this podcast, West Cork. And I thought, this is an extraordinary story. And my producer on My Scientology Movie, Simon Chin, who'd also done Man on Wire, and searching for Sugarman, he agreed. And it was Simon who really set about, you know, we decided if you were going to do this, you'd need to do it differently to the podcast. And so let's let's start with the family. And, and Simon started building 
those relationships with the family, mainly through her Sophie's cousin, Frederick Gazot, who's who's in the film, but is also a, a sort of associate producer, not because he had any control over the film, but he acted as sort of bridge between us and the family. And also he provided us with some amazing archive and home movie footage of Sophie. And, and that's really how it, it, it came about. You know, there were sort of a few of us who thought, you know, this, this story has only ever really been told in terms of a podcast and in terms of, I mean, there was a sort of local Irish documentary, but it felt like it, it's such a, it's a real quandary with true crime because you say it's a great story and, and then you have to be mindful of, there's a slight uneasiness in turning, you know, something quite horrific into a, you are, there's no getting away from it. You are turning it into a sort of piece of entertainment which I think you always have to be very mindful of. And how can you do this in the most measured, respectful, um, you know, an almost sober way? You know, you know, I, I had a rule of thumb for the, you know, a lot of these series have, you know, dramatic reenactment. You kind of have to because there are moments where there is an archive and you need to illustrate things that have happened. And I had this rule. Um, my sort of rule was in terms of our, drama reenactment, no actors, actresses. I don't want anybody trying to play Sophie or just feels very wrong. And no, what did I call it? No bloody hammers falling in slow motion in a studio. Because a lot of a lot of true crime films recently do sort of fetishize, you know, the, the gory aspect. You know, they're almost sort of like low-budget horror movies in some of their so that was that was um very much at the front of our mind as well. Right. Like uh, a lot of, you know, I, I, I talked to a lot of people that are involved in the paranormal and uh, I guess entertainment industry and whatnot. And a lot of those shows and sometimes a lot of these true crime documentaries are marketed or made for that audience, like a, like a uh, horror movie or a scary movie kind of a thing. They want to see the crime. They want to see a reenactment. They want to, but I'm glad you did not take that approach because it's a lot more honest and it's a lot more heartfelt feel to it. And, you know, I was just thinking back, you know, I lost my dad. Uh, when I was 15 years old, uh, he was just too many birthdays. He, he died in natural causes, but, but, um, yeah. but I lost my, my dad at 15. And so you have a lot of, uh, a lot of footage and a lot of, um, the emotional, the emotional turmoil that, that Sophie's son went through cause he lost his mom at that age. So young. And so I, yeah. so I, I, I kind of, you know, internalize that a little bit, you know, like how awful it is for this, this boy to lose his mom you know, regardless of how she died, but just, just that human tragedy of it. Then, then you interviewed the parents and talked to them and they are so old and frail and this, you know, it's ruined their life and broken their hearts. Um, but there's also so much uh, steely resolve with this family of being active uh, with starting a foundation and the legal challenges that they mounted, you know, going back to France and everything. And just, just how strong this family was, uh, was very, it it was good to see, you know, I mean, so many times, like I said, people exploit these, these crimes just for viewership or, you know, clicks and ad advertisers and things. But, uh, I thought it was a a very decent turn of, of you guys to, to include the family and include, you know, the, how it shaped the, the community going forward too. that small community of Cork. I mean, it, it, it was it was so important because I think, you know, we are all interested in this. You can't get away from it. We There's a sort of human compulsion to think who could do such a thing. And there is the mystery element. 
But, you know, if you then watch an interview with Sophie's son, Pierre-Louis, and his description of how he felt at that moment, you know, he talks about it as an electric shock and his life fell away. And there's a moment where he says every bit, every bit of this family's life at that point crumbled. Mm. And and if you have that in the film, then it it, it 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 takes away, I think, that sort of sensationalism. And and you understand as a viewer just how shocking this event was. I mean, the interview I did with Sophie's parents is, you know, I've been making documentaries for over 20 years. It's the hardest interview I've ever done. You know, they're in their 90s. And and, and normally it's, it's um, Sophie's mother that does all the talking. But she's really ill at the moment, as you can see, as you can see. And her father is actually a very shy man, a, such a wonderful man, but such a shy man. And during the interview, he kept breaking down and crying while we were talking. And I said, we don't have to do this. It's just television. We don't have to do it. And he just looked me in the eye and said, I want to do it. It's important. And it's just like, it was, it was heartbreaking, but they, you know, they were so... You know, they so wanted to do it. Even now, as you say, 25 years afterwards, it, it, you know, I think when people see that, you know, it stops people from thinking, hey, isn't this, you know, a bit of fun that we cannot, not fun, but isn't this, isn't this a bit of sort of voyeurism that we can all discuss on Twitter and go, oh, wow, did you see this, see that? I think it, it sort of stops you in your tracks a bit. Yeah, there's that aspect of voyeurism, like you said, for sure just these incredible characters that you've, that you've assembled in here. And even, even the town of Cork, the, the community, uh, the, the lush green Hills of Ireland, just everything that you framed within this documentary, it just brings such a, a clearer picture. I guess you could say it's cause it's not a whodunit. It's, it's kind of an examination of what happened, how it affected the community, just, just everything else. Um, I have to ask you that the footage that was, that was shown haunting footage of Sophie in her cottage. I don't know how, yeah. how and where and why that was captured and how well, that- I mean, that, that's a classic, well, not classic, but that's just one of those documentary. We didn't, we got that literally, literally. I'm sure some filmmakers always say this, but we literally got that at the 11th hour. We got it as we were, we were wrapping the series. And it was, it was Sophie's cousin, Frederick, who- I think he spoke to the daughter of um, Sophie's husband, Daniel, who's obviously now no longer um, with us. And um, she just found it in her attic. You know, she, she, wow. she said, I, I had a memory of there being some stuff. And, she, and Frederick kept saying, will you look for it? And she didn't get back to him. He said, will you look for it? Will you look for it? You look for it. And, and finally, you know, and finally you... Um, she turned it, and it was amazing because there's actually a moment where she talks and, and all the family kept saying, we've got no audio recording of Sophie at all, which was very frustrating for us because we want to make her, obviously she's an absence in the film by definition, but we, you know, we wanted to try and give her some sort of voice, and, but there was just nothing. You know, In fact, her brother Bertrand joked that she was a terrible singer, so no one ever recorded her. And, and, you know, any any of the previous footage we had, it was all silent Super 8 footage. But this was video, and it had this this tiny piece of audio on it, which we actually end the whole series with. And, you know, it, it is, yeah, it, it 
it really, really helps. And again, that came through our relationship with the family, particularly Frederick. You know, he he earned his associate producer credit with with that itself. So when you go, that's interesting to me. So you're making a documentary. You think you know how you want to lay it out. And and then something like this drops into your lap. When you're making a documentary, something that's happened 20 some odd years ago, you've got a lot to go through, a lot of news reports, a lot of interviews, a lot of wit, you know, just, just all that. Is it possible to go in kind of like with an open mind? I mean, can your mind change can you make decisions later on and, and when making a film like yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah i mean i yeah you have to listen i you can't this whole idea that documentaries are objective is you know it's nonsense you know there's no like any other story the storyteller which is me and the rest of our production there is some sort of point of view you try and be as balanced and nuanced and and show the complexity as much as possible but yeah, I mean, I I I came into the, fee, the the film with with again. I don't want to give too much away for anyone who hasn't seen it. But you know, I came into the film actually off the back of the podcast, thinking that I wasn't sure the prime suspect had done it. And let's just say, I mean, listen, I'm always very careful about putting my view across because it can be a bit incendiary. And this is still an ongoing case potentially. Other things have started to develop off the back of this series. But, you know, towards the end, I I changed my mind. Uh, but again, it's it's not my opinion, the film. It's you, All you can do is present as much of the, the testimony and evidence, and then it's it's up to the viewer to decide. But um, which is why we always on these things try and avoid having voiceover and, you know, sure. not lead the viewer to a conclusion. Try and let them make their mind up as much as possible. But yeah, things check, you know, things change constantly. In fact, we got to a moment at the end of the series where I got very close to getting one character who'd been told some key information that he'd never revealed, but we just couldn't quite get him over the line legally mm. um, because we had to use everyone who'd already given a police statement. Otherwise you're in the business of hearsay and it's potentially libelous. But but um, yeah, I mean, I would have, I would have, I would have wanted to waited a few more months to see how that played out. But unfortunately, you know, we're we're like any other production; we have to stick to schedules and budgets. And but that that character is now talking to the Gardaí, the Irish police. So the story keeps going. Well, and the story has ebbed and flowed and changed and kind of uh, raveled and unraveled in different ways over the last 20 years. And and when you're saying the main suspect, you know, his name's, his name's Ian Bailey. And I was surprised that he took part in, in a documentary uh, about this, where he was a main suspect and, and you're able to. I wouldn't to be surprised. I would not be, you shouldn't be surprised about that, Brian, because <laughs> this is a man who it's a very peculiar, you know, like I said about the podcast, he's center stage in the podcast. He 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 was the one who tagged himself the prime suspect. I mean, in in, in almost a sort of in, he seems to get a thrill at being at the center of the story, which is yeah, which is is sort of mind boggling in itself. But yeah, there was um, yeah, I never I never felt any I didn't feel any moral compunction when it came to having Ian Bailey on screen because this was a man that constantly wanted to be on screen. He's been in other documentaries, you know, other podcasts. You know, he's 
he's he's become a slightly questionable character on Twitter as well. So he is someone, you know, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience, but if I somehow, God forbid, ended up as the, the prime suspect in a murder case, I'd keep my head down. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't constantly be um shouting from the rooftops. Well, yeah, he keeps um he keeps bringing himself into the story or interjecting himself into the story, even all these years later. And, you know, uh, like you said, it's still ongoing. It's not closed. They haven't brought anybody really to justice uh, in Ireland. Nobody's jailed. Nobody's been convicted of any crime. Uh, and that's, that's, that's important that he, he or nobody else has been, but you know, there, there's interesting and very compelling parts of the documentary too, with Mr. Bailey, when he is, I don't want to give too much away. I'm not going to give too much away, but there's an important part where he decides to, you know, he's had enough with the newspapers and he challenges them in court, which does not go well for him. No. I mean, again, it's another, um, you know, one of the, one of the characters I love in this series who we is, you know, they're great guy called Barry Rhodes, who's basically the local news reporter, and he's been on the case. You know, he's a classic old-school news reporter. He's not a journalist. He's a reporter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's covered this case since the beginning. And as as, as Barry said, you just, you just never knew what was going to happen next in this case. And that is, that's just a bizarre turn. Totally unexpected. And, yeah, you know, he thinks it's going to go one way. And, again, without giving too much away, it, as with everything in this story, it doesn't quite doesn't quite play out as as well, especially he thought. So you you've got footage of him. Uh, you you have conversations with the family. You have a conversation with the Ian Bailey, and then I thought another interesting character in this whole this this whole saga is is this uh, Marie Farrell. Uh, she's introduced into this. Uh, <laughs> she's introduced into this story, and uh, and then. Feral. Yeah, I mean I, that must have been just to follow like what how she is involved somewhat in this 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 whole thing and stories changing. Uh, I, finished and then, this, I finished this film over a year ago. Yeah. I still wake up in the middle of the night and go, "What the hell is Marie Fowler all about?" I I still find her. You know, I mean, one of the reasons I make documentaries is I'm very intrigued as to the human nature what what makes us tick you know to say it in a more cliched term but I just cannot fathom what makes that woman tick I mean I, I during the course of the production me and my producer Sarah Lambert we must have met with Marie five or six times she was going to do the film she wasn't going to do the film she was going to do the film she I mean which is pretty much her state of mind during the, the the case itself. I mean, she changes her mind a lot, and, and the problem is with Marie. She's 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 flip flopped so many times that anything she does now say isn't really credible. I mean, I, I I can't help wondering is is she a fantasist? Does she also like to be center of this story? Does it does it give her life some meaning or entertainment? Which is pretty twisted if you think about it, given what's at stake, but. Yeah, I mean, again, if for people who haven't seen it, she basically claims to have seen something and then changes her mind and changes her mind again. And I mean, I'm not sure this story would have carried on if it weren't for Marie Farrell. 
Yeah, I mean, and she's not just giving some testimony. I mean, she is IDing a suspect yeah. by name. By name, she says, yeah. "I saw not a shadowy person or something like." Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, she's like, "I saw this person." Yeah, yeah. At and, at this place on this date at this time in this yeah. general vicinity where this murder, where murders never take place, and and yeah. and a brutal a brutal murder where a woman is beaten to death outside and left and just left out just uh like you said you know is she inserting herself into the story for some kind of uh validation or some kind of she needs the attention or was her story changed because of threats was her story changed because of this why is she flip-flopping all these years later i mean that is part of the mystery part of the intrigue what part what makes yeah. it compelling and to have that you know i just think you know, people's jobs are 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 stressful enough, and here you are going out to tell a story and to maybe help a family and to, you know, kind of get this information out for people, and then you kind of got these plans, and then just uh, human nature, uh, people changing their stories or not not being cooperative or being cooperative in a different way than you're expecting. I mean, it's got to just throw your whole production. At night, you must be pulling your hair out trying to figure out what to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, no, yeah, but listen, that's that's for me, that's a a minor quibble, and that's just part of it. You, you have that on every film. There's an element. There's always some challenging element in every film. I mean, possibly not quite as challenging as Marie Farrell. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a problem like Marie Farrell, as it were. But um, yeah, you just all you can do is is you know. <laughs> is is try your best to make sense of it in the film, and I think, I think even if she had finally decided to to take part, I'm not sure it would have helped. I think it would have maybe even made it more murkier because that's what Marie does. But um, yeah, it was certainly um, yeah. I've she's she's an extraordinary character. God knows. I mean, I I personally think she did see what she originally saw. And I think she changed her mind for the reasons that we intimate in the film. Mm -hmm. I have to hand it to you, though. Taking this awful story, this awful murder, putting such a wonderful human spin on it with the family, and also just just the way it was filmed, too. Now, I've been to Ireland a couple times, and it's just one of the most peaceful places I've ever been to on Earth. It's beautiful, the lush green the beautiful scenery, the cliffs of Moher. That's where I was in. That's where I asked my wife to marry me. Just then, and then you just take the, just the gruesomeness of this tragedy of the, of this heinous act of violence. I, it's awful. And, and, and then how you just combine the two. It's just, it's, I'm not just blowing smoke here. It's, it's masterful. I mean, it's, it's, I think you just did a fantastic job. I, I was, I was drawn in immediately. Uh, it's gripping filmmaking and, and an important story, I think. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's, again, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I think this is, this is the one that, 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 that has, I have to choose my words carefully because I don't want to sound flippant or glib, but it's the one that really got under my skin, this one. I mean, most, I mean, you have a sort of rule of thumb with films. You know, you have a duty of care to the people. It's a big deal for someone to go in front of a camera yeah. and, and tell their story. It is a big deal. You know, I always say to, I mean, I, I, in some of my early films, I made myself go on camera and do some of the storytelling. And I always say to new filmmakers, 
try it because you'll realise how difficult it is for, for the people when you're sitting behind the camera. But, you know, you try not to make friends with them because you, you want to try and tell the story as, you know, objectively as possible. But this one was just different. I mean, it wasn't a case of making friends with the family. I just, I built a very personal relationship with them. They didn't ask for any editorial control. They trusted us to tell the story. Um, but subsequently, I, you know, I continue, I, I continue to see Frederick. I go and visit him in Paris. And, you know, I, I, this is one I just don't think will leave me. And I, 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 I can't really get it out of my head. And because it is still ongoing, I'll keep following it. You know, I, I at one point started to write a book about the experience of it, but then realized I'm, I'm probably a better filmmaker than I am a writer. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a big responsibility as well, but that pales into insignificance to, 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 for, for what's at stake for, for, for the people in front of the camera. Yeah, you're not writing and putting out a, a a sitcom or or something like that. Just that's just entertainment. You've also, like you said, you've got like you feel like a sense of responsibility to tell the story uh, truthfully and carefully. Uh, it, it's it's like a documentary filmmaker, especially this kind of documentary. It's more of a you have more of a burden, uh, I think that's that's placed upon you to to have that responsibility and to and to do that. Yeah, there's a lot more at stake. There's a lot more at stake. I tell you, I was watching that and I was like, boy, that's, boy, that's, that's one of the, that's a great show. I, I really was like, man, that's really so well put together. I wonder what else John Dowers put together. So I did the Google search. <laughs> I went down and then the name D.B. Cooper came up and I was like, holy shit, D.B. Cooper. Like what? I was born in 1974. And I remember at a young age, my dad like reading and talking and and just like, well, they never found this guy, this D.B. Cooper. It's like the last American outlaw, the last like cowboy, uh, you know, just the story of D.B. Cooper and, and, and the, the hijacking of a plane and, and the stealing of money and, and jumping out of the plane. You, you really put together another fantastic documentary, The, the Mystery of D.B. Cooper, which I caught on, uh, on HBO Max. Um, again, I got to ask you, like, what led you down the road to like making a story about an American uh, another crazy American. What, what would you uh, uh, inspired you well, to make that? You know, again, even though I'd love to, I can't take credit for coming up with the original idea. Yeah. I mean, I should try and have more ideas myself. <laughs> but um, I mean, actually, it was a, another producer who told me about this story. And I was kind of annoyed when he told me because I have made a lot of films in the States. I love your country. I love, you know, like any other country, you've got your slightly you know, less savory side and quirks, but, you know, it's genuinely an awesome country. It's it's extraordinary. I've made a lot of films there. You know, I made a film about Scientology. I made a film about the box of Joe Fraser. God, I even made a film once about Britney Spears. Um, but I was told about this story and I'm like, why don't I know about this story? Why have I not heard of this story? And this is insane. This can't be real. And, and, you know, you pitch the story to people, particularly here, because it is actually not a well-known story in the UK. Mm. And weirdly, actually, I, I shoot the odd commercial in the States and younger crews that I've worked with often don't know the, didn't know the, the Cooper story. And maybe it was more a story of that time, the 70s. And yeah, I mean, it's bonkers, isn't it? It's absolutely, it's, it's you know, if you pitched it as a movie, you'd be like, yeah, 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 but it's a bit, 
it's not very plausible. Well, it happened. Right, right. And if you saw something like uh, that action sequence in a, in a Hollywood film, oh, sure, the guy jumps out of, you know, you, I mean, I mean, you probably see it in some uh, some crazy action film with The Rock or something like that, a guy jumping yeah. out of the plane and miraculously he either survives or disappears. But going back into the 70s, like I was just reminded by, uh, I remember the first time I was on a plane, I was like four or five years old. And I, re- I remember parts of it, but people just paying cash at the counter and getting a one-way ticket, no problem. Yeah. Just getting on the plane from the top, you know, just walking on the plane and sitting wherever. And and uh, you had a funny uh, little interlude with like talking about the uh, culture of stewardesses and and just just all that from the 70s. Yeah, different times, different times. Absolutely. And, and <laughs> just everything... Again, everything with these movies, the Sophie one and this one too, what would, would make it really uh, compelling for me is listening to the people involved, the characters. I mean, you actually went back and you found uh, the, the flight attendant, um, Tina Mucklow. Yeah. Who, she was fantastic. And her recounting the story of, of encountering this guy, D.B. Cooper, whoever the hell he is, uh, on the plane and dealing with him and just the whole thing about getting the money and landing the plane and then the hijacking and this and that. Uh, like the gentle, the gentlemanliness of this, this crime that he committed, you know, he didn't threaten anybody with a gun. I mean, he had a bomb, maybe it was real, but no, no shooting, no, no violence didn't hit anybody. I mean, just- no, it's an unusual, it's an unusual crime. And, and I think you're right. You know what? I mean, it's why I love making documentaries, you know, I'll, I'll sadly, well, I'm a bit late in life anyway, but I'll never end up making a, a film with the rock. Sadly, um, um, both me and him, I'm sure. Right. But that's why I love documentaries. I love people telling their real stories, particularly when they're as out there as this. And actually what, this was funny because this was a film in which you get the initial event. You think, wow. You know, you pitch that to someone in a bar. You go, okay, so it was a dark and stormy night, Thanksgiving Eve, you know, 1971. Guy, black suit, black sunglasses, black attache case, gets onto a plane, orders a bourbon, lights up a cigarette, plane takes off, passes a note, the demands. And then it, this plays out. He jumps out of the plane with the money and like, wow, you've got me. But actually, what interested me most, which is what we construct the film around, is these people who now believe that they know who D.B. Cooper is. And and they believe it with a passion. And it's a bit like what we were talking about earlier. You know, you have to respect people's stories. Now, listen, there's not much at stake with these people's stories. You know, Mm, they didn't lose a daughter. Nobody died. But I still take the same approach. It would be very easy with this story. You know, we have this expression in, um, in in the UK called taking the piss. It would be very easy to take the piss out of these characters, to mock them. Oh, look at these, you know, crazy wackos. Right. But for me, the people that we found, they believe so much, you know, that they've dedicated a large part of their lives to unraveling what they believe. And so for me, you always had to respect that. And you had to treat their stories with the same kind of reverence as as you would somebody in a true crime story. And, you know, you know, it's a film, you know, sounding a little bit, you know, sounding possibly a little bit pretentious, but I'm a director. We're never scared of doing that. But, you know, <laughs> it, there are bigger themes. You know, it's, it's, it's about identity and, and belief and fantasy possibly, or grief. You know, I, I just found so many of these characters were, were grieving for people missing in their lives. 
but also entertaining. You know, these are these are kind of crazy stories. And, you know, there is a sense of what it could be him or it might be him. And, 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 and so I was very keen to not just make an action film about, I mean, you could have just made an action documentary about the hijacking in itself. Although the hijacking is quite peculiar because, you know, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary event, but actually none of the passengers on the plane knew it was happening. Only the crew did. So it's actually, it's actually quite a passive event. There's actually, as you say, there's no drama. There's nobody standing up screaming with a hand grenade. It's all, it's very gentlemanly. So it would have been hard to make a 90 minute film just about what happens on the plane. And in any case, as I said, I became more, I became seduced by these stories of people who believed they could, they could almost identify this guy who's still not been identified. Yeah. What one thing I, I really, and I'm sure that this, this went into your planning more than the Sophie one, like what, what your intent was to make this film. You, you, you kind of highlight these four individuals and their stories. You never come out and say like, this guy is D.B. Cooper or this person is D.B. Cooper. It's, it's like, I just present the stories. Yeah. Listen to the families. Here's their evidence. Here's why they think this person is D.B. Cooper in their life. And then we move on to the next one or, you know, and they, yeah, I think, I think ultimately, you know, it's, you know, who cares what I think, you know, I mean, I do have an opinion on who I think was Cooper, yeah, but, but ultimately I think it's a more satisfying, weirdly, it is satis- more satisfying for the viewer rather than going, okay, it's this person. We all want a conclusion, but this is the sort of story, you know, life is complicated, man. I mean, it really is. Life is complex and I, uh, you know, you know, we live in a huge, massive, bizarre universe of galaxies, and we actually, as a species, know so little. And you know, I, I like my viewer to have the to to try and make their own mind up, and 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 you know, have that argument in the head that I had while I was making it. I mean, I changed my mind so many times <laughs> while I was making it. Who it might be, and and again. We chose to focus on these four. There are a lot of others. I mean, we did rule out, you know, I mean, one guy said, I know if you give me like, you know, $10,000, I'll tell you. Anybody that was right. looking to make money off it, you're immediately ruled out because your belief is not pure. <laughs> you know, you're just after it. You're hustling me. But And some of the stories don't really have that complexity. You know, when they have that sort of, whiff of real life that's 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 what made them interesting for me ultimately does it does it matter because they all believe maybe that's enough that they believe their person is cooper maybe maybe that's enough i wish i had that surety of belief on on things in my own life <laughs> right right it's something you can count on but all these people like you said they all have a belief why they think their loved one or the person that's in their life was in their life is DB Cooper. And they're all compelling. They're all compelling reasons. And you, you look at that and you're like, wow, that's, that's something else. And then you, then the, the, you featured the investigative, um, the former investigative reporter, uh, Bruce Smith was his name. And I thought he was, he was interesting too. This is a guy who is just moved and obsessed with this story. And, and his story is interesting as well. I mean, like you got these people that are, that are rumored to be, or or could be DB Cooper, this, this, uh, mystery that'll probably never be solved. Uh, you know, 50 some odd years later, a, a movie 50 years later is not going to solve the mystery. But here's this guy who's been studying this uh, and now he's out in the Oregon wilderness. And, and it's just amazing. Just, I just, 
it's just one of those great American mysteries that will not be solved. And in a way, I'm kind of glad that it's not going to be solved. I think if I ever picked up the paper and they said, well, here it is, it's, it's, it's Dwayne Weber, or here it is, it's uh, Uncle LD. Here it is. Yeah. Here's Barbara Dayton is LD. You know, like I'd be like, yeah. oh, okay. Well, you know, it's that's boring. We we, yeah. we need mystery in our lives. We, as I said, you know, right. sounding a bit like a sort of stoner, which I'm not, but you know, we live in this huge, massive, vast universe, which we don't really know what it's all about most of the time. And it's, you know, we live in an age where we, you know, particularly the internet where, you know, everyone tries to explain everything to us. But I love the fact that these, mysteries are still out there and and you know this story keeps on giving as it were i mean it, you know i loved bruce you know you know there was a number of journalists and you know commentators we could have had but again what i loved about bruce is that like the other people who believe they know who cooper is their family members you know bruce lives this story you know yes. he really lives it absolutely so you said you've bounced back and forth uh today if you had to say, put your finger on somebody today, could you narrow it down to somebody? My heart yeah. says Dwayne Weber because there's just something about that story I love. But my head, I think, says Floyd McCoy, the right. copycat hijacker. The, the Floyd McCoy story, I was a little bit disappointed in that we couldn't quite get across the line with all the characters in it. Basically, I believe that, that Floyd McCoy's wife, who's still alive, holds the key to that story, but she will not talk. She just won't, and believe me, I tried. And I I, I think it might be Dwayne, um, um, but I, I suspect it might be Floyd, but hey, it may be neither of them. Right, right. And you know, the, uh, this crime is so unique. I mean, this guy didn't drive a getaway car. This guy jumped out of an airplane at 10,000 feet. So right there, <laughs> you know, that kind of narrows the suspects down. Like they should, yeah. probably should have some paratrooper experience. Uh, but yeah, like with Dwayne, his wife, uh, just, I loved listening to her. That was, that was great capturing of, 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 oh, of, yeah. of that story of talking to her. I just thought that was masterful. And, and she's just such an intriguing character and she, you know, God bless her heart. She believes uh, what she's saying. And that comes across just how genuine, uh, you know, these people are, and that's that makes a good film when you can sit back and relax and 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 listen to somebody tell a story and they genuinely or genuinely believe what they're saying. Uh, yeah. And it's not like she's writing a, a million dollar tell all book or anything like that. She's just telling her story. No. But again, which made which made her more her story more attractive to me in the. Yeah, like I said, the guy who who asked us for ten thousand dollars is like, you know what. I don't quite buy you, but her, you know, ah, she was, she, she was fantastic. And, um, yeah, those are the, you know, it's again, the reason I love doing it is, is meeting characters like that. It's a kind of privilege yeah. and it's a privilege for these people to let, you know, let them into your homes. I mean, you know, because normally I try and go and meet my contributors as much as possible in advance of filming with them. Cause again, like I said, it's a big deal to go on camera, but you know, she lived in Pensacola, Florida. You know, I live in Streatham, South London. So that was always a, on our budget at that point was quite tricky. So, you know, she's, she's, you know, she's taking a punt on letting some limey, some English guy she's <laughs> never met into her house. Um, 
And I mean, she did, I do, oh, my overriding memory of that was she had pristine white carpets and she absolutely screamed at me the first time I walked in the house because I, had, I hadn't, I was so jet lagged, I didn't think to take my shoes off. But oh. um, we got over that hurdle and things went well after that. But yeah, you know, it's, it's a privilege for these people to let them, to let us into their houses and also to let, you know, to let us into their stories as well. Well, in the seconds that we have remaining here, I just have to tell you, you, you mentioned the word privilege a second ago, and it's it's a privilege to have uh, you as a filmmaker on my show to talk to me, you know, some South Side London guy talking to some Midwest American guy. It's, it's amazing that we uh, have this technology to to share these thoughts and ideas. Uh, so, you know, we, we had to cancel a couple of times because I had some personal stuff going on and you had some things going on, including uh, filming. So are you working on a, on a new film anything oh, i'm doing i'm just finishing a really tricky film a really different kind of film but okay. a really you know they're all difficult in some way but basically without boring you too much <laughs> 10 years ago yeah. i made a now this won't resonate too much with you guys but i made a film about a british cyclist and he became the first cyclist to win that big event the tour de france so he won tour de france and he won olympic gold um at the London 2012 Olympics a week later. And he became, he went in five weeks, he went from being a complete nobody to a national hero. And it was kind of an extraordinary film to make, to be at the centre of that. And to, I mean, listen, you know, I, as I, ever I'd like to take credit, but, you know, it would not have been the film it was if he hadn't have won. <laughs> and so, but then he approached me yeah. about a year ago and said, I want to make another film. And I said, well, why? How can we better that? And, um, but, you know, we agreed to do one day's filming and it was extraordinary. So it, it's been, it's been a film about what's happened in his life in the last 10 years. And it's a really difficult film. It's a, basically a film about sport and mental health. And, you know, in his words, he says at one point in the film, I gave up my happiness to be great at something. So it's quite a dark and difficult. Yeah. It's been a, so it, we think it's finished, but it might not be. It might never see the light of day. I don't. I hope not, but I think it will. But it's just been, you know. Again, it goes back to that thing. It's 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 um, it's a real responsibility putting someone's story in front of the camera. And and Bradley, his name's Bradley. He came to me on this film, and you know he's had doubts and you know reservations. But I suspect. It, I mean, I think it's an extraordinary film just because of how much he's been willing to talk about what's happened to him. So, but we'll, we'll see, but yeah, that's, that's, that's coming to an end and I've God knows what's next. We'll see. <laughs> I might just have a, I might just have a lie down for a couple of months. All right. Well, listen, it's been great having you on the show. I've, I've been uh, really enjoying this conversation and I look forward to other films that you make and produce because a lot of people can make a film. A lot of people are making films and documentaries and shows right now but not a lot of them have such uh control of the matter and and present it with a real human touch so my hat's off to you and you know thank thank you john for being part of my show a pleasure and thank thank you for those very kind words brian thank you very much oh there we go with mr john tower one of the great pleasures of having a podcast like this is being able to connect with people that have such vision and that are so talented and at the top of their game. And that is the case with John Dower.
Next up on the Necronomicast, episode 227 will feature cryptozoologist, field investigator. You've seen him on television on National Geographic, History Channel, Sci-Fi. He's been on Coast to Coast. Uh, Ken Gerhard. We're going to be talking about his book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot. The Essential Guide to Bigfoot. He's written a slew of books, but we're going to spend a lot of time on Bigfoot. So excited to bring the world of Ken Gerhard to you on the next episode of the Necronomicast. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to so far, take a second, please, pretty please, head on over, leave a review, Spotify, Apple, subscribe at YouTube. It allows me to have enough clout to have these great guests that I bring to you every other week on the Necronomicast. Now go get some sleep.